The Affair at the Victory Ball Pure chance led my friend Hercule Poirot, formerly chief of the Belgian force, to be connected with the Styles case. His success brought him notoriety, and he decided to devote himself to the solving of problems in crime. Having been wounded on the Somme and invalided out of the army, I finally took up my quarters with him in London. Since I have a first-hand knowledge of most of his cases, it has been suggested to me that I select some of the most interesting and place them on record. In doing so, I feel that I cannot do better than begin with that strange tangle which aroused such a widespread public interest at the time. I refer to the Affair at the Victory Ball. Although perhaps it is not so fully demonstrative of Poirot's peculiar methods as some of the more obscure cases, its sensational features, the well-known people involved, and the tremendous publicity given it by the press make it stand out as a cause célèbre. And I have long felt that it is only fitting that Poirot's connection with the solution should be given to the world. It was a fine morning in spring, and we were sitting in Poirot's rooms, my little friend, neat and dapper as ever, his egg-shaped head tilted on one side, was delicately applying a new pomade to his moustache. A certain harmless vanity was a characteristic of Poirot's, and fell into line with his general love of order and method. The daily newsmonger, which I had been reading, had slipped to the floor, and I was in a deep brown study when Poirot's voice recalled me. Of what are you thinking so deeply, mon ami? Well, to tell you the truth, I replied, I was puzzling over this unaccountable affair at the Victory Ball. The papers are full of it. I tapped the sheet with my finger as I spoke. Yes? Well, the more one reads of it, the more shrouded in mystery the whole thing becomes. I warmed to my subject. Who killed Lord Cronshaw? Was Coco Courtney's death on the same night a mere coincidence? Was it an accident, or did she deliberately take an overdose of cocaine? I stopped, and then added dramatically, These are the questions I ask myself. Poirot, somewhat to my annoyance, did not play up. He was peering into the glass and merely murmured, mm, Decidedly, this new pomade, it is a marvel for the moustaches. Catching my eye, however, he added hastily, Quite so. And how do you reply to your questions? But before I could answer, the door opened, and our landlady announced Inspector Jab. The Scotland Yard man was an old friend of ours, and we greeted him warmly. Ah, my good Jab, cried Poirot, and what brings you to see us? Well, Monsieur Poirot said Jap, seating himself and nodding to me. I am on a case that strikes me as being very much in your line, and I came along to know whether you'd care to have a finger in the pie. Poirot had a good opinion of Jap's abilities, though deploring his lamentable lack of method, but I, for my part, considered that the detective's highest talent lay in the gentle art of seeking favours under the guise of conferring them. It's the victory ball, said Jap persuasively. Come now, you'd like to have a hand in that. Poirot smiled at me. My friend Hastings would at all events. He was just holding forth on the subject, n'est-ce pas, mon ami? Well, sir, said Jap condescendingly, you shall be in it too. I can tell you it's something of a feather in your cap to have inside knowledge of a case like this. Well, <laughs> here's to business. 
Now, you know the main facts of the case, I suppose, Monsieur Poirot. From the papers only and the imagination of the journalist is sometimes misleading. Recount the whole story to me. Chap crossed his legs comfortably and began. As all the world and his wife knows, on Tuesday last a grand victory ball was held. Every tuppenny eight op calls itself that nowadays, but this was the real thing held at the Colossus Hall and all London at it, including young Lord Cronshaw and his party. Mm-hmm. His dossier, interrupted Poirot. Uh, I should say his bioscope. No, 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 no. How do you call it? Biograph. Well, Viscount Cronshaw was the fifth Viscount, 25 years of age, rich, unmarried, very fond of the theatrical world. There were rumours of his being engaged to Miss Courtney of the Albany Theatre, who was known to her friends as Coco, and who was, by all accounts, a very fascinating young lady. Good. Continue. Lord Cronshaw's party consisted of six people. He himself, his uncle, the Honourable Eustace Beltane, a pretty American widow, Mrs Malaby, a young actor, Chris Davidson, his wife, and last but not least, Miss Coco Courtney. It was a fancy dress ball, as you know, and the Cronshaw party represented the old Italian comedy. Oh, uh, well, whatever that may be. The Comédie dell'arte, murmured Poirot. Mm, I know. <clears throat> anyway, the costumes were copied from a set of china figurines forming part of Eustace Beltane's collection. Lord Cronshaw was Harlequin, Beltane was Punchinello, Mrs Malaby matched him as Pulcinella, the Davidsons were Pierrot and Pierrette, and Miss Courtney, of course, was Columbine. Now, quite early in the evening, it was apparent that there was something wrong. Lord Cronshaw was moody and strange in his manner. When the party met together for supper in a small private room engaged by the host, everyone noticed that he and Miss Courtney were no longer on speaking terms. She had obviously been crying and seemed on the verge of hysterics. The meal was an uncomfortable one, and as they left the supper room, she turned to Chris Davidson and requested him audibly to take her home as she was sick of the ball. The young actor hesitated, glancing at Lord Cronshaw, and finally drew them both back into the supper room. But all his efforts to secure reconciliation were unavailing and he accordingly got a taxi and escorted the now-weeping Miss Courtney back to her flat, although obviously very much upset. She did not confide in him, merely reiterating again and again that she would make old Crunch sorry for this. Well, that's the only hint we have that her death might not have been accidental, and it's precious little to go upon. By the time Davidson had quieted her down somewhat, it was too late to return to the Colossus Hall, and Davidson accordingly went straight home to his flat in Chelsea where his wife arrived shortly afterwards, bearing the news of the terrible tragedy that had occurred after his departure. Lord Cronshaw, it seems, became more and more moody as the ball went on. He kept away from his party and they hardly saw him during the rest of the evening. It was about 1.30am, just before the Grand Cotillion, when everyone was to unmask that Captain Digby, a brother officer who knew his disguise, noticed him standing in a box gazing down on the scene. Hello, Crunch, he called. Come down and be sociable. What are you moping about up there for, like a boiled owl? Come along, here's a good old rag. Now, come on, coming down now. Right, responded Cronshaw. 
Wait for me, or I'll never find you in the crowd. Now he turned and left the box as he spoke, and Captain Digby, who had Mrs. Davidson with him, waited. The minutes passed, but Lord Cronshaw did not appear. Finally, Digby grew impatient. Does the fellow think we're going to wait all night for him? he exclaimed. At that moment, Mrs. Mallaby joined them, and they explained the situation. Say now, cried the pretty widow vivaciously, he's like a bear with a sore head tonight. Let's go right away and rout him out. Well, the search commenced, but met with no success until it occurred to Mrs. Mallaby that he might possibly be found in the room where they had supped an hour earlier. They made their way there, and what a sight met their eyes. And there was Harlequin, sure enough, but stretched on the ground with a table knife in his heart. Jap stopped, and Poirot nodded and said with the relish of the specialist, Une belle affaire. And there was no clue as to the perpetrator of the dean? But how should there be? Well, continued the inspector, you know the rest. The tragedy was a double one. Next day there were headlines in all the papers and a brief statement to the effect that Miss Courtney, the popular actress, had been discovered dead in her bed and that her death was due to an overdose of cocaine. Now, was it accident or suicide? Her maid, who was called upon to give evidence, admitted that Miss Courtney was a confirmed taker of the drug and a verdict of accidental death was returned. Nevertheless, we can't leave the possibility of suicide out of account. Her death is particularly unfortunate since it leaves us no clue now to the cause of the quarrel the preceding night. Oh, by the way, a small enamel box was found on the dead man. It had cocoa written across it in diamonds and was half full of cocaine. It was identified by Miss Courtney's maid as belonging to her mistress, who nearly always carried it about with her, since it contained her supply of the drug to which she was fast becoming a slave. Was Lord Cranshaw himself addicted to the drug? Oh, very far from it. He held unusually strong views on the subject of dope. Poirot nodded thoughtfully. But since the box was in his possession, he knew that Miss Courtney took cocaine, huh? Suggestive that, is it not, my good Jap? On, said Jap rather vaguely. I smiled. Well, said Jap, that's the case. What do you think of it? You found no clue of any kind that has not been reported? Oh, yes, well, there was this. Jap took a small object from his pocket and handed it over to Poirot. It was a small pompon of emerald green silk with some ragged threads hanging from it as though it had been wrenched violently away. We found it in the dead man's hand, which was tightly clenched over it, explained the inspector. Poirot handed it back without any comment and asked, Had Lord Cranshaw any enemies? None that anyone knows of. He seemed a popular young fellow. Who benefits by his death? 